Welcome to Humanity Shines with Shelly Nagel. This podcast features people from all walks of life, their ups and downs, and what inspires them. Today, we have Aaron Johnson joining us from Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's a disability rights activist and documentary filmmaker. 2019 was a very transformative year for you, to say the least. Do you want to start there? Sure. It actually was, um, the entire year kind of was. I, after a very long uh, career of being involved in entertainment and the lifestyle that goes with it, you know, lots of heavy drinking, um, drugs, just like every stereotype you imagine is like was true about me, basically. And like, um, so I actually quit drinking and everything in the summer of 2019. And then five months later to the day, I had um, I had a stroke. Uh, we didn't actually know what was going on. I was living in Los Angeles and I went to Disney World, Florida for my stepmom's 60th birthday. And I came back the next day or I came back and then the next day I had a stroke. And um, yeah, it, it wound up paralyzing me from the neck down at first. And that was December 9th, 2019. Who found you or how did you get to the hospital? So I actually woke up in the middle of the night, uh, some I, off the top of my head, like at 3.30 a.m. roughly. And I couldn't feel my right, uh, what was it? I couldn't feel either of my hands felt like they were asleep. Both of them did. And then my right foot did also. And I thought that was weird. Like, you know, maybe if you fall asleep on your arm, but how could it be both sides and my foot? And I kind of tried to wait it off and walk it off, so to speak, because of so many years that I was such a bad alcoholic that I just fought through so much, so many blackouts to get out of whatever circumstances I may have been in. Yeah. So um, it started getting even worse and I started getting really dizzy. So I actually walked zigzagged about a half mile to a hospital, like while I was apparently having a stroke. Jesus. Yeah. And uh, actually, they didn't believe me once I was there because I didn't display... Like, whereas normally a stroke, you kind of have a, um, like a blood clot or a uh, blood vessel in your brain bursts in, in either case, usually it's like very sudden. And whereas mine was onset. And so when I went there, they did basic, uh, simple examinations or tests or whatever for like a stroke. So in their training, they didn't recognize what was actually going on with me, which we only just found out six months later, really the most up-to-date theory about what happened is that I was diagnosed in 2016 with an autoimmune disease that mimics cancer called sarcoidosis. And as a result of that, mine was in my lymph nodes, or it still is, I should say. And so I had large lumps in my neck. And when I went to Disney World, apparently I caught COVID, which is a lot of people now saying that there was something up at Disney World around that time. Right. And COVID causes inflammation. So that swelling in my neck basically pushed the lumps and pinched an artery. So it was like, it was kind of a slow choke. And so like doctors didn't recognize it as a stroke, but I was, it was just being pinched subtly over a span of hours until the point I eventually was immobile from the neck down. Wow. So how long were you in the hospital for in out in Los Angeles? So that 
um, experience in the emergency department was pretty wild, actually, because they didn't believe me. They were trying to send me home and uh, they injected me with an antipsychosis against like without telling me. They told me it was going to stop me from throwing up. And um, but then apparently it's this thing called Haldol, which can inhibit stroke recovery. So that may have actually made my situation much worse. Um, and then they said I have to walk home and they were throwing me on the ground for not walking. And then they actually forged my signature on a discharge and were trying to drop me off on skid row in the street. So I survived 19 hours of that. And long story short, a friend caught wind, came in and started asking questions right. and they finally took it seriously. And I got a room. I was there until the day before New Year's Eve 2020 when I transferred into a nursing home. I was there until February 19th. I left to come back to South Minneapolis because um, there was like a pretty neglectful, pretty bad situation there. And I just had to get out of there. So I came back to South Minneapolis. And then, uh, you know, about a, a month later, um, the pandemic officially hit. I still didn't know I had had COVID. We still didn't really understand what had happened to me. But that nursing home got hit. It wound up becoming the hardest hit nursing home in the state of California. Wow. I don't want to name names, but yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So you were paralyzed from your neck down for how long? How long did that last? So at first I could lift my left leg off the bed about an inch and then I could kind of flap my arms. And that was the extent of my mobility of my entire body. And um, that was, you know, whatever, December 10th or 11th or whatever. And when I went into the nursing home, I could take about 50 steps with a walker and like two people holding me up. And then by the time I left the nursing home, I couldn't sit up for prolonged periods. But from that period to when I got to the Twin Cities, I, I was at first staying with my stepdad and so I was sitting upright on a couch, kind of hanging out with him, you know, watching TV or whatever. And it's like, I was kind of at that state for a little bit, but, you know, I moved into my apartment March 1st and I could kind of hobble around my apartment to the bathroom and, you know, I've got a standing stall shower. So like that would be, you know, the extent of what I would do because the pandemic hit and the world shut down and I didn't have access to physical therapy or anything. So I, um... It's, it's kind of just a gradient, you know? I would right. spend the next year and a half basically essentially teaching myself, reteaching myself how to walk uh, using a cheap treadmill I got off Amazon using PUA, uh, Pandemic Unemployment Assistance. Wow. And you use a cane now, is that right? Yes. Uh, so the doctors at first, they did not know if I would ever walk again. They didn't say either way, like, you will never or whatever. But they did say if... I were to ever walk again, I would need to use a walker for the rest of my life. Wow. But and um are using a cane, which is And I'm using a cane. Which is a big accomplishment from a, a win is a win. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's a big win. Wow. So this is a lot. So this happened and then I know this had happened and then you started to get involved more in activism in Minneapolis. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um so I grew up in South Minneapolis in the general area of what is now uh, George Floyd Square. And I was in South Minneapolis when all of that happened in front of a store I used to go to, you know, in the 90s and that I have many memories of. And um, when that happened, I had a searing rage 
I've never felt before. And um, when all of the events happened, or let me just clarify, when I saw what happened to George Floyd, uh, I had a seared rage. And in the events that followed, I was very, I, I sat through it, unable to move really, I mean, too much, you know, listening to the neighborhood I grew up in are exploding and burning down around me and all the chemicals that went with it and everything else. So yeah. that for six days straight with no sleep and I could barely move and I didn't know if someone was going to jump through the window or what, you know? Right. And uh, so that, and then, and then, so during that time, I was also still stuck inside because I didn't realize, none of us knew really what had happened to me. I just knew that I was newly disabled from the neck down and I had an autoimmune disease and there's a disease that's killing all these people around the world and it's hit America really bad already at this point. So I was hiding from COVID when everything was going right. on also still. And I would remain there until actually um, about around the time Dante Wright had just gotten killed and Derek Chauvin was just about to be convicted or around the same time is when I came out of the world. And during that whole time, I was watching live streams um, Brooklyn Center, uh, you know, after Dante Wright and and everything that had happened in my community during the George Floyd uprising. And um, that's really how I experienced the uprising. So when I came back out into the world, you got to keep in mind, I went into isolation December 9th of 2019. So the conversations were, it's going to be the roaring 20s and we're going to like have this great decade ahead of us. And, and then when I came out, it was like my neighborhood was in ruins and there was this just entirely different world. So I just started taking pictures of everything and, uh, one thing led to another. And that's kind of what led me to where I am now. So can you tell us a little bit about the documentary that you're working on? Yeah. So through taking pictures and, and filming, you know, people in these very like, this incredible displays like artistic I don't even know what to call it these like incredible speakers that I would see at all these Black Lives Matter rallies and stuff you know I started recording all that and uh when Kim Potter was on trial for killing Dante Wright I was at you know I had missed all that and I I had this sort of like almost I don't want to call it FOMO but I was at the trials every day filming everything and when the trials were done, I had all this footage and I kind of made a makeshift documentary. And um, since then, I've been part of my activism. I've been filming encampments in the neighborhood that I grew up in. That's kind of how it started. And I started just showing up to try to document the police brutality and just the inhumanity that I was witnessing. And um, so now it's become this kind of other thing where it's like, now I have so much footage of that. I started to kind of make content and I started meeting residents over time. And again, it's just one thing led to another. And now I'm making a whole documentary um, just to open up the subject because it's so hard to talk about. And there's so many narratives flying around and there's power imbalances and nobody wants to talk about it because no one wants to look bad. And so how do we solve this issue? Because what I'm seeing at these encampment evictions is... Uh, it's not for the faint of heart. And um, my movie will be real, but I'm going to limit that aspect of it a bit. But um, yeah, basically just, I, I there's so many stories and reasons why people end up where in these encampments and, you know, let's talk about it. That's why I'm making the movie. Right. 
I feel like a lot of people don't understand why people are homeless, you know, and there's, there's so many components and some people struggle with mental illness. Some people have situational homelessness. Do you find that a lot of people who are disabled end up homeless? Could you talk about that? Yep. Well, um, I completely skipped over a huge part of what I do, which is through what happened and everything in South Minneapolis and through me becoming newly disabled, you know, I really started becoming educated about um, black history and a lot of uh, watching a lot of documentaries. And I started realizing there's a lot of disability marginalization that like we don't even nobody even knows about. And so that that aspect also intertwines with this music, um, excuse me, movie, because um, according to a recent survey in, um, in one of the camps, so this, the sample size is one camp, and let's keep that in mind to be real, but 47% of the residents self-identified as being too disabled to work. So that means um, you qualify for a social security disability, you know, um, you know, you might be an amputee or et cetera, whatever. A lot of people in these camps have psychological disabilities, which there are 10 defined categories of uh, diagnoses, excuse me, you know, could range from schizophrenia to bipolar to even things as common as depression and anxiety. And um, and also there is a high frequency of neurodivergence mm-hmm. in encampments. And so these are people that typically don't like invisible disabilities like that, people don't even necessarily fully realize that they are too disabled to work. They, they're just like, I don't know, man, I'm just like here or something, you know? And it's like, so that 47% is actually excluding, right, there's probably a much higher number is what I'm trying to say. Right, right. So your documentary that you're shooting, you're going to be releasing it. When, when do you think that will... Well, I am filming throughout winter of 2023. So it's a very big topic. It's a very big subject in Minneapolis. Um, it's It gets, keeps growing, actually. And um, there's a lot of tension between City Hall, the mayor, the people, the police, and the county. Um, and so it, it's really, you know, filming throughout the winter and while they're trying to come up with these solutions. And, you know, I don't have an exact ending date for filming because of that. Um, I'll be editing it shortly after post-production and probably entering more like film festival circuits, like hopefully fingers crossed, you know, in like autumn, like late autumn, probably. Or like, and you know, submitting and all that stuff. Right. Right. That's a huge yeah. process. Yeah, exactly. What is the name of the documentary? They Sleep Among Us. They Sleep Among Us. Okay, cool. And so you've been interviewing different folks who live in the encampments and their experience and yeah can you tell us a little bit about that yeah totally so you know it's kind of tricky because you when i'm making this movie i have a lot of things that i've promised myself these are rules that i've created for myself which are things like do not sensationalize um do not make it like you know suspenseful you know um, the trailer, I used a little bit suspenseful music because you kind of got it. It's for fundraising. You got to get people hooked a little bit. But like the movie right. itself is going to be um, very humanizing. And right. so that's one of the rules. And then one of the other rules is um, there's two more important ones I want to mention. One is that it has to be a story 
So it's not just like kind of a Wikipedia almost movie, you know, it's like, but the other thing is the people I'm involved in in the film. um, Yeah, it'll be residents. I'm trying to get everyone, local government, neighbors, near encampments, um, outreach volunteers, the police themselves. And so it's been very hard getting the mayor involved. Fingers crossed. I find out tomorrow if he agrees. I, I know for a fact he's watching my trailer and some outtakes and different stuff. So that's at least cool. But the experience that I've had in um, most of the interviews has been with residents because they are in a way, I don't want to say desperate, but like they're just, they want to get their story out. It's like they're surviving, you know, like, and um, they deserve that and they deserve it. And I've just learned so much about what really is causing these things and um, what lacks of infrastructure and systems we have. And, and um, you know, it's just, we, we just like really dehumanize people on site a lot of times. And I don't know, I hope this project really kind of reverses some of that through some of their stories. That's awesome. Can you talk a little bit too about um, now that you are disabled, I know that you have become an activist for disabled people. Can you yep. talk about what your process is and what you've been doing? Well, my process, you know, it's another thing. You know, I think activism is something that's so, it's not like a linear or definition or journey. You know, whatever your activism is for you, that's your activism and that's what works. Whether it be, you know, you work a 40-hour job and you call, you know, local politicians So for me, or, you know, like, or you're in the street or whatever, sorry. But for me, like what I've found works for me is I am basically in multiple sort of spaces. And because of that, I'm meeting a lot of really great uh, minds and leaders. And I'm really just trying to educate everyone about disabilities because there, there isn't, there's just right now starting to be a conversation about disabilities um, in a lot of like activists, like content creators and stuff. Um, but it, we're, it's what I realized is like with disabilities, we're not even at a place that uh, we can even really hold actions, so to speak. I mean, I had to fight, 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 fight just to get one disabled, uh, uterus ever to speak at a recent, um, abortion rights rally that had 5,000 people at the state Capitol, you know, it's it's right now it's an education thing because people don't even realize. But meanwhile, and I am going to give a, a small trigger warning, um, but uh, basically there are rates that affect disabled women or uterus havers or, you know, whichever is the most comfortable term. Um, basically, the SA or assault rate is 90% um, and of people with cognitive disabilities um, and... For women that have experienced it more than 10 times, it's 60%. And only an estimated 3% of assaults are even reported at all. So um, don't you think they should have a voice in something like abortion rights? You know, access to abortion, doesn't it seem like a very impacted community? But disabled women are just completely left out of all conversations. Um, I've only seen a total of three content creators and the person that I helped, or, you know, like, basically this speaker that I kind of helped get onto the stage. I mean, there's no conversations about it. So right now we're just in the education phase. 
Right, right. How has your life personally changed now that you're disabled? Like just things that you used to do and... Totally. I, I would love to hear about that. Okay. Well, you know, I think there's another important conversation to be had, which is like various privileges and I, and how identity plays along to that. Because I actually grew up not knowing that I'm neurodivergent, not knowing that I had these kind of like invisible disabilities. And I also grew up maybe not like what people think of as poor, but like low income between that and like lower middle class. Yeah. yeah. Definitely not like, yeah. And my point is like, I've got a certain perspective from growing up in the city and growing up in the area that is now George Floyd Square. I mean, just from experiences. Right. But as I became an adult, the world began to sort of groom me, so to speak, as a white male. And sort of like you are in spaces that you're suddenly like, wow, I was always kept out of this like when I was younger because you're like, I was like broke and like weird and from the city and whatever. But like now I'm a model or whatever. And it's like this whole different environment changed. And with that, a lot of my sort of views and experiences and perspectives changed. Um, I would say that since I became disabled, a lot of that has been stripped right away from me all over again. And so like, I kind of, it's very been very humbling. It's been very rehumanizing. It's been very, um, given me sort of grounding and like a direction in a lot of ways because I'm really reconnecting with who I truly am instead of like trying to play along with this like assimilative role that like I was like fitting into magically so to speak like yeah do you feel like your relationships have changed with people or people look at you differently since this yes yes (laughs) yes oh my god yes everyone everyone from uh, um long-standing friendships uh i you know ranging from really see disabled people as people quote unquote you know um, it was illegal to be in public if you were disabled until 1974, I believe, under ugly laws. And um, there, you see Mayor Adams bringing stuff like that back in New York City, where you can now be arrested if you are suspected of being, quote unquote, mentally ill. You know, we've seen this in history is my point. So, like, you know, to think about there, too, is like by allowing these types of ableist, uh, I don't know, environments or conditions who else is being affected, right? So, like, this could potentially affect us all. I have been, um, I've been waiting for a lift one time in LA. I was visiting a hospital on unrelated, like, unrelated to health things, like, more of a PR thing. But anyways, I was leaving, and the, uh, like, public relations head of the hospital had just walked me down, told me, sit in this bench. This is the best place that everybody waits for a lift. And so I'm sitting there about... Less than two minutes after she walked away, I hear this, excuse me, sir, are you okay? And I turned around a little confused. It was a security guard. And I said, oh, yeah, thanks. And he goes, okay, you have to leave the property. The property line is over there. You're trespassing right now and you need to get off. The sidewalk is over there. Because he saw the cane and he saw homeless. And so that happens a lot. And why are people seeing homeless when they see disabled? There's something there that people correlate that in their mind. I mean, you know... Right now, I can tell I can prove to anyone who's listening, just think about what you see or what you envision, what you imagine when you think of a person on the street um, who is unhoused. You know, does race play a factor? Possibly. 
Do they have like beat up clothes? Probably. Do they have a cane or are they talking to themselves or a wheelchair or a walker or any other assistive device? Chances are a lot of times they do. So um, we visually realize these things. And um, yeah, the world has started criminalizing me, essentially. That's how I feel pretty much every time I walk out my door, actually. You feel more judged than you were before. I would say I experience ableism literally every day. Every day I walk out the door, it doesn't matter if it's in the streets at a rally, I experience it. It doesn't matter if it's in a hospital where you have to walk around an entire compound to find the right entrance and then there's no wheelchairs inside and there's a whole mess of other things. Because you do need a wheelchair sometimes, right? If you're feeling tired. Um, Currently, I do not. I would think if I did like some kind of intense act Activism or something like multiple days in a row, I would need to relax. But and there was a time period where, like, you were. I, yeah, couldn't be using a walker for longer than ten minutes. I was done for the day after that. Aaron, can I share your? Can you share your age? Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm forty. You're forty. You just started. Uh, the stroke happened when I was thirty-seven. Thirty-seven, right? So you're yeah. young, younger. Thank you. To ha- to be and to be using the cane. So I. Oh yeah, and there, there's something to that too. You know, people see wheelchair. People see. And they, they associate elderly. And so um, a lot of times young people, and I'm lucky to have not grown up with physical therapies. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that because there are also privileged tiers within disabilities like there is with many other things where there's like invisible disabilities and then there's physical disabilities. And then there's, you know, did you grow up with it? Meaning were you segregated through your school experience and right. everything that goes with that? And there's, there's school to prison pipelines that affect disabled people significantly higher. I would like to take a moment to um, accentuate these, uh, this information with the fact that any marginalizations that I experience as a white disabled person, black people with disabilities um, experience it measurably any, whatever the statistic, it's twice as much, whatever it is across the board. We don't even know indigenous uh, disabled statistics because they're not really even tracked. So, um, yeah, just I don't even remember why I went on that tangent. I just like there's different levels, but uh, sorry, kind of went off. How? So you've had a lot of changes in the past couple of years. A lot. What has inspired you to keep going? Because you physically have had to work a lot harder than you ever had just just to walk, to get up in the morning, even when you were first had your stroke like just dressing yourself all that what has kept you going with this life shift that you've had i don't know what it is you know i always was always running around jumping off of things and you know i have adhd and like i just always needed to be you know whatever and i think like something about that kind of still stuck with me like i couldn't even really barely talk at first i was so you know like could not really talk and um I was talking right away because I was I'm just fired up I'm just a person who's fired up but yeah but you know honestly real talk I mean I was like I was determined I was gonna do it you know and then the pandemic happened and then it's like George Floyd happened and then it's like Dante Wright and this that and the other thing and um I just all of that happened in my neighborhood and just watching the live streams it just really gave me a burning like a serious inside burning passion that that they messed with the wrong neighborhood and you know and it's you know we, i'm so proud of what george floyd square is because it's become a central hub 
for lots of people with various marginalized community um, identities. And we're setting an example that other places can sort of look to. And I just really wanted to document that. I think it's a fascinating time. I came out of a year and a half of isolation after being going through some of the wildest things that a lot of people just would never even want to imagine going through. And I just, I wanted to show the world like, you know, and then the other thing is, you know, this all happened in my backyard. It's like when this happens, where you grew up, where you're currently living, it's like, I'm in the army now, you know, I don't, you know, it's, I have no choice. Like, so I don't know. It's all those coming together. And I just, I, I, to me, sometimes I'm uncomfortable. You know, when I came out and I started going on marches, I was using a rickety walker that I got from that, uh, from that, uh, nursing home. I was using the same rickety walker that I got and I could not even finish marches. A lot of times the kind of barricade vehicles in the back would scoop me up and just give me a ride the rest of the way. But, um, marching through the pain, I didn't do it with the intention of, you know, using a cane, but marching through it. And I just thought about George Floyd that whole time. Yeah. He was on the ground for nine minutes and 29 seconds, begging, pleading, knowing what was going to happen. And fucking insane that they're just murdering him. Broad daylight. Yes. Broad daylight. And, you know, um, yeah. And, you know, and and very casually, you know, like almost like Derek Chauvin was doing it like he was uh, filling out a form or something like it was just so casual and. Yeah, business as usual for what they might experience in their profession. And um, that nine and a half minutes, like there are nine minutes and 29 seconds. I mean, that to me, I could march through any pain because I can't even imagine the horror of the horror of experiencing that. And so I thought about him every time I started to feel tired and it just I just was able to keep going every time. Fuck yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Aaron, it has been a joy to have you on and thank you so much for sharing what you've gone through and i'm going to put uh your documentary in the show notes so if anyone wants to watch it follow you uh you're doing great work thank you keep kicking ass thank you